back to this installment of the Well-Lit Path podcast. Uh, it's really great that y'all have chosen to join me again this week. I'm really looking forward to Psalm 2 and digging into it. But uh, before we get started, as always, how's your week been? So I've actually become a grandpa in the past year, and my grandson is fast approaching his first birthday. Everything I ever heard is true. Uh, I love that little dude like I never knew I could love a little person. As far as love for people in my life right now, it currently sits at my wife, Crystal, definitely at the top of earthly love, and then him right behind her. Don't, don't get me wrong, my kids come in a close third on that earthbound list, but he won against them the minute I held him for the first time. We get to spend time with him just about every Sunday, and... Man, I just love every minute of it. And he's getting to the point now where he's really moving and getting into stuff, and I, I even enjoy that. It's just always a good time. That's kind of a, a highlight for me every week uh, that I just thought I'd share with y'all. I, I did have a pretty emotional start to my week last Sunday. Uh, the second episode went live, and I found, I found throughout the day that songs uh, about Christ were really hitting home for me. I kind of preached to myself in that last episode when I spoke of the times uh, that when I don't feel a song because my heart wasn't in the right place, and the Holy Spirit just like came in and just wrecked me uh, last week with music. It, it was kind of like he was like, well, you called that out. Let me help you with that. It's almost, but not quite coincidental that when we recognize this area of improvement or any kind of area of improvement in our spiritual life, the Holy Spirit will all of a sudden give us ample opportunity to work on it. And so through the music in our Sunday message, it was really refreshed for me just how much God loves us. It hit me pretty hard. As I dug into Psalm 2 over this past week, it just became more and more apparent to me we can't comprehend the pure and raw, utter devastation of God's judgment. And he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to ever experience it. It was kind of in this vein of thought that the Holy Spirit was just using the music that we were listening to in the car on the way home. And Crystal was talking to me about um, how good God was and how she'd been listening to this podcast. and I. I started feeling really emotional and I, I kind of had to tell her to stop. I just, it sounds kind of cheesy, but I just couldn't handle the greatness of his love for me in that moment. And it was really overwhelming for me. And I got, I got like super choked up and I was driving. So I didn't want to like start to break down and like man cry while I was driving. And it's because God knows how uncompromising and violent his justice is, he made a way for us to never experience it. That's how much he loves us and wants to redeem his creation. Isn't God good? I could sit here and dwell on that for a while, um, but we'll never get started on our journey today if we stop there. Have you, have you ever been out hiking? And there are these turnouts, right, where you can stop and rest and get revitalized. Uh, on our Christian journey, as we walk the path that God has set us on, it's always beneficial to kind of turn in every now and then and rest with God and just dwell on his goodness. 
but we can't stay there. Dwelling is never a place of growth. It should only be a place to grow from. So on that note, let's pick up our packs, refreshed and revitalize, and let's start down the next section of the path. Now, Psalm 2, while not having an author attributed to it, uh, just within the book itself, if you've got a Bible that kind of attributes that kind of stuff to authors, it is attributed to David when we look in Acts 4 at the release of Peter and John after being questioned by the Jewish elders about healing of the lame man. When they went back and rehearsed their questioning before the disciples of Christ at the time, after they'd been released, they, they actually sang a portion of this psalm. Uh, one of the, it was one of the first records we have of psalms being sung in the early church. And as we read, it, it'll become really apparent that this is what we would consider a messianic psalm, which simply means that it's kind of, it's a prophetic psalm of the coming Messiah, the promised Savior, and King of Israel. So put a tune in your heart real quick. Let's see if we can't find some words to put to that tune. So in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us break our bands asunder and cast their cords away from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I want to go back to seven really quick. I, I kind of misread that with inflection. I want, to, I want us to understand what's going on to here. That, that should be read. I will declare a decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Listen, I'm so excited right now. I, I like to think of the intro part of this psalm as delusions of grandeur. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It's, it's, he's kind of saying, why do the masses clamor and riot? Oh, the world is just so unreasonable. Nothing is fair. I want to be treated fairly, but I also want to be special and unique. I don't want social norms imposed on me. So I'm going to seek to redefine the social norms. And how dare you try to define who I am? I define me. You know, when we listen to phrases like that, the cacophony of our desire for independence must sound like the buzzing 
of a bunch of little bees to God at times. We don't want our place in this world as defined by God. That's, that's just not good enough for us. As in Genesis 11, which we covered last week Sunday in a very powerful message by our pastor, uh, it was concerning the Tower of Babel. They, ra- they raged and we rage against how God has defined us. We can be better than that. We can be mightier than that. We want to choose our God, and so we do. We choose it in our desires. We choose it in our whims. We choose it in flights of fancy, or as we can only imagine it. Huh. It seems like all of our imagining has kind of led to vanity, so we imagine vain things. What good does it do to try and define ourselves before a holy God? You know, we rage because we don't want to be defined, and then we imagine that we can find definition outside of our actual intent. We've been consumed by our own free will, and we've let that become our God. We get in this mindset of my freedom to choose is tantamount to all other choices. Well, what would you choose then? And, well, I don't know. Something other than what has been defined for me. There there are scientific actualities that govern our will. Yet we accept those as they're defined, but not other God-ordained scientific realities. You know, gravity doesn't change, though we wish it to be different. The sun doesn't change its course if we wish for a longer day. The weeks remain at seven days. I will tell you right now, I have wished for there to be two Saturdays every week. And, you know, I joke at that. But it's like me saying oxygen is needed for me to breathe, but I have no desire to do that, so I'm going to redefine reality. How bizarre would it be for me to wake up one day and exclaim, you know what, I choose from this day forward to breathe carbon monoxide. So now I'm going to inhale carbon monoxide to live, and I'm going to exhale oxygen so that I can contribute more efficiently to the ecosystem of the world. And you look at me and you say, Tom, stop being so ridiculous. But is this any different than the world we find ourselves in that rages to define itself in all of its own hubris? In our demand to be individuals, we've forgotten who made us so unique in personality, in physicality, in intellect, in emotion. Can we not define ourselves within these norms and admit, yeah, you know what? You're much more empathetic than I am, but I do have a more logical mind. Or can't we say, you know what? You are vastly prettier than I am, but you know what? I happen to be taller than you. God already made each one of us as different as a snowflake, but that doesn't mean that we have to be the perpetual snowflake in our commitments to reality. You know, snowflakes melt pretty quickly. So will our ideas of of self-definition when we put it to the heat of reality. 
listen, just like I cannot redefine myself against scientific absolutes and become a carbon monoxide breather, well, just the same, I can't redefine myself according to my whim of preference. This is how the ungodly rage. But Christian, are we not just as self-defining at times? God's not working in my life as I see fit, so I'll just kind of help him along. You know, Abram made that same mistake when God wasn't operating on Abram's timetable. And from it came a nation that to this day is Israel's greatest antagonist. How many times have we decided to help God and made a problem for ourselves that plagues us long after God has rectified the situation? Oh, well, God, if you open up this job for me by having them offer it to me, then I'll know it's your will. What if we simply got the job because we were qualified and it had nothing to do with God's will? I don't mean to step on any toes, but I know I'm stepping on my own a little bit here in my own life from time to time. What vain things are we imagining that are a result of us raging or creating a commotion in our lives simply by us trying to define God's will for our lives? He goes on to say that the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They're conspiring against God's purpose, and they shake off the shackles of his limitations, the confining definitions on their lives. I want you, I want you to take a couple of minutes and imagine something with me. You're in a foreign, strange land. Now, before coming here, you were ignorant to any indigenous dangers or people with malicious intent. And you're happy to travel there because you've heard that, hey, a good time can be had by all. So upon your arrival, you're welcomed with open arms. The people are really quite friendly. They're loving. They have your best interests at heart. And you have everything you need. And then one day, on just a casual walk, you come to a fence. Huh. You never knew a fence was here before. Well, you, you try to climb it. But in your exertion, you fall, you scrape a knee, you bust a finger. And the wounds can be mended and they heal. And you ask the proprietor about this fence. Oh, you, you shouldn't have had to climb that. The owner of the compound, he put that up. Everything within the fence is yours to enjoy and relish in, but beyond the wall, there are people and things that they don't, they don't have a place inside this compound. They're not allowed in these walls because their only desire is to harm you. And if given the chance, they'll kill you. So you just you kind of push off the thought about the fence and you proceed to enjoy all the different things offered by the ownership. Life is indeed good. But that fence, every day now you walk to it and you peer out into the darkness beyond. 
what if what's out there isn't as bad as they say? What, what if what's out there is just a little dangerous, but a little bit of danger could be exhilarating? Life is just so normal and boring this side of the fence. So you make a plan. You stop enjoying the things around you because you've become obsessed with what is beyond you. What is out there? And every day now you sit at the fence, no longer planning, but plotting. How dare they keep you in here? Whatever is out there can't be as bad as in here. And besides, just because it's dangerous to others doesn't make it dangerous to you. You're different. You're more unique. And as you sit there at the fence line, you see it. It's just the smallest U-shaped hole right there at the base. You hadn't seen it before. And suddenly you're through it, and you're free. Oh, well, look at that over there, and look. Blackness. You're gone. You're not even you anymore. You look down, and you're simply a part of the darkness. There was nothing actually there. It was just an image of something you'd made up in your mind. Everything that defined you and made you unique within the fence is now lost in the darkness that you've chosen to call home. Friend, this is life when we break the bands asunder and cast away the cords that God has put on your life. He's the owner of every life. Defined in him and safe in his definitions of who we are as a person and as a people, we find clarity. Our problem is that we perceive his protection as a prison, and then we only want to break free. You know, God's not trying to keep everyone from all the good things. He's trying to protect us from the bad. And in his wisdom, he defined us, and he wants us to be safe in his definitions, secure in the reality that he created us unique in him. No, God has no desire for clones of each other. He doesn't want us to look like anything but his son. And it's only in him that we should find definition. And Christian, hear me when I say that this is just as easily us. Oh, we don't, we don't disappear into the darkness. It just clings to us like tar. It, it sticks to us like every bad decision we made to leave the protection of the property owner of our life. You know, bad things don't happen to us in that darkness because God is punishing us. No. Bad things happen to us because we chose to leave his protection. And when the world leaves the protection of the definitions God founded in creation, God sits and laughs. And th this isn't a chuckle. This isn't a laugh in joyous merriment. This is a laugh at how we could even imagine 
that our thoughts could possibly supersede his. That this is a laugh in which we would probably much rather it be silent rage. In this case, when the Lord God Jehovah laughs, it is as he prepares to set right. This is a, watch this, kind of laugh in which he prepares to move those that would scorn his definitions and his protections and make a mockery of his plans for us. This is a laugh that no one anywhere would ever want to hear. This laugh is so unsettling that it causes those that are moving against his purpose to be in derision. That word here means to be so confused and afraid that they're literally left babbling incoherently and stammering uncontrollably. You know, science tells us what type of response this is like. The trauma of God's wry laughter at the audacity of man to self-define and be freed from the protective bonds of God is so severe that they that hear it are left in shock. This isn't a spiteful action, no. We've begged this upon ourselves by our own actions. In, In Proverbs 1, godly wisdom as a personage cries out, Because I have called, and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set it not on my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. That's verses 24 through 26. He's offered the goodly the godly thing to us, and we've disregarded it and rejected it, so he wryly laughs. Okay, but where you think you don't need him, you do. This is when the Almighty utters in his holy wrath an untainted jealousy over a creation that would so choose to despise him and disregard him in this way. And in a way that causes them to be anxiously dismayed or vexed because of God vocalizing his displeasure, God says, despite your rebellion, despite your unwillingness to acknowledge my headship in your life, I've set the king of my choosing at the prominent place, at the blessed place of my ruling. You should find your dependence in him. See, God's not shaken or influenced by the dissatisfaction of the creation. His purpose for the creation does not change because the creation has rebelled. His rule is not dependent on the submission of his creation. This is why he laughs. The audacity of the creation to believe that we hold any influence over our own purpose, or that we can effectuate a different outcome than what God has planned? He's already chosen his king in the person of his son. And and he's the only one who has the authority to choose the king. You know, Israel, Israel suffered much hurt at the hand of the king they chose in Saul. 
many a trouble was brought on them because of his rule. When God chose a king and set him up in his wisdom, his anointed one after the manner of Christ, because let's be straight, God anointed his son as king long before the earth was even established and long before Israel groaned for an earthly king. And it's from the lips of the son that we hear, Jehovah has called me his son. He brought me to life from death, victorious over every idea you had about reality. Now, from a Christophic perspective, the rulers hated him. They wanted to imagine that they could best him, but not Jehovah's anointed, not his only son. (laughs) How the father must have uttered a wry laugh as they believed they had bested his son in the crucifixion. (laughs) Okay, but then arose our conquering champion, victorious over death in the grave. And if he could conquer those two enemies, how easy to conquer those that would dare or imagine to stand and oppose him. And the son says all he has to do is ask the father and he could have all of the heathen, all of those that don't wish his authority in their life, to destroy just as they deserve. Just as we deserve. Because don't ever think for a minute we're any better than these heathen. God help us if we should ever think that we didn't deserve to be broken with a rod of iron and dashed to pieces like a clay pot. For many of us, that's exactly where God found us. He had already broken us. Our lives were already in pieces. We'd already succumbed to the darkness outside of the compound. And that's the son's right. We would be justifiably destroyed. And as I said close to the beginning, we couldn't begin to imagine the violence we deserve for God to inflict on us. We'll never truly understand the meaning of God's grace and mercy until we understand the total violent justice of God's wrath. Not because he relishes it, but because it's just. Christ's death, a free gift of pardon for our sin, and we have the arrogance to say, I can find my own way. Here, let me define myself despite your sacrifice that should define me. You know, what you did was pretty good, but it just doesn't seem like it was enough or real enough. Did you really do it at all? What are we if not caught in our own pride? How high we have built ourselves up in our own eyes. And how much we seem to this Bible student, so like the builders of Babel, we will. How like the fallen angel Lucifer we naturally become. And the son, with all of his power and might bestowed on him by the father, knowing that in an instant he could bring us all to justice, looks at us and turns to the father. 
And the father sees in the son's eyes that portion of his nature that is just as undeniable as his wrath is love. And so he offers redemption. Be wise. Be instructed. Listen and learn. This is your chance. Serve the Lord Jehovah with awe because he is an awesome and a terrifying God. We should awe at his might to utterly destroy, and we should be in awe of his tenderness to utterly save us from that same destruction. When we think what could have happened had he sought, had he not sought us out to pardon us, to pardon me. You know, I've told some of my testimony. And should we ever get a chance to sit down, I'd expound on the depravity that was me. And the only reason I would do that was to show you the grace and the mercy that he showed me. You know, I was already his. But the darkness outside of the fence that I leapt into clung to me like so much black tar that I couldn't see my own skin. I was so covered in it. And he came after me. He wanted to draw me back into his protection. He wanted to bring me in and patch me up and sit down with me and let me cry on his shoulder. He loved me. And even as I think of it, I tremble as I rejoice and find joy in the fact that he just wanted me to love him a fraction of the way he loves me. He wanted me to serve him just so he could bless me. And Jehovah warns, kiss the son lest he be angry. Bow your will to the son. Put his bonds upon you. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. How can a burden be light? Friend, I'll tell you right now, how heavy can the burden be when our king is bearing it up with you? And he's not helping 50-50. Listen, he takes everything you can't handle. And listen, if I can be just a little more vulnerable with you, some days he carries all of the burden because I can't. Because when this life has broken me and I run to him for refuge, he doesn't just help with the burden. He takes 100% of it. And then when he knows that I'm ready to carry some again, he gradually sets some back on my shoulders. How miserable to go through life without such a savior and friend. And to anyone without this savior, I ask, how do you do it? And why would you want to? So bow to him, 
put his bonds on you, if his wrath is kindled just a little, it's enough to destroy the cosmos, the universe. If he can bring it to life with one word, couldn't he also destroy it with the same? Who are we to stand and puff our chest out at this, our Redeemer? Because just as want as he is to save us, he will also be as swift to judge when that day comes. You know, his father has given him the heathen. He'll break those that oppose him, that try to live outside of his will. But how rich the blessing to live within his will with our trust in him. While he warns what would happen if we should try to stand against him, if we would just repent and surrender to the lordship of the king, he would welcome us and allow our worship. Do you see it? As you float in the darkness outside of the compound, a darkness that you've jumped into, a darkness that you've chosen, a light cuts through. Is it possible? It, it's pointed at you. And you hear a voice calling out to you, do you want to come serve me? There's some work to do, and I could really use you. And for the first time, you feel love. This isn't love like you've ever imagined it. It's not dependent on where you are because you're hideous and mangled after all, just a part of the darkness. But somehow he looks at you, right at you. And as you reach for him, there's your hand. You were undefined before because you sought for definition in the wrong place, the place outside of the protection of his definitions. And now there's your arm. He doesn't see you the way everything else does, the way everyone else does. He calls you chosen. He says of his that they are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. He has made you royalty with him, this king that you see so clearly now. And as he takes your hand and he pulls you inside the fence, there you are. Righteous. He hugs you. Now he hugs you. This is the king of the world. This is the definition you didn't want? Sinner, Christian, we can only find our defining moments in the service of the true and only worthy king. Because the miraculous thing is that God's chosen king chooses us.
All we have to do is be defined in his service. And that's where the blessing is. That's where the life is. And if you haven't already joined me in the protection of his presence, in his divine definition, now's the time. Because Christ is calling you to wisdom, to service. Christ is calling you chosen. So stop trying to define yourself. We're horrible at it. It's exhausting to try to be all the thing the world wants us to be. Christian, aren't you tired of wandering around out there? There are some battles in your life that could have been avoided had you remained in his protection. Not, not outside of his salvation. No, you'll, you'll never stray away from that. But outside of the protective canopy of his will. He's calling you home. Because for all of his holy and righteous wrath, his preference is mercy. Y'all, Psalms 2 has been very humbling for me. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. Thanks for walking with me a little while as we read the word together. Next week, we'll be in Psalm 3. I can't wait to get together again with God's word between us.